And this is Chris for Brothers Be Podcast, where we discuss black LGBT issues and topics. And today we are doing a special podcast that actually discusses the impact of HIV stigma on the black community in South Florida. And this is going to be the first of community dialogue series that's actually taking place at the World AIDS Museum and Educational Center located in Wilton Manors, Florida. And we have special guests that will be part of this panel. This will be part of the host will be Marvin Shaw, who is actually one of the advocates located locally here down here in South Florida. Yolanda Reed Bell, Lorenzo Robertson, and also Jamal Starks, along with Christopher Bates, who's also been uh, in the advocate world within HIV, even on the governmental level. And so we have several people that's going to be providing their views on several questions that will be presented to them tonight, along with the audience. The audience will be participating. You will hear the words. You will hear the questions coming. And also a little bit of the emotions coming directly from them. And I want to make sure that we're able to have this recorded so people across the world will be able to see and also either converse within their own neighborhoods or to be able to think in terms of some of the answers and some of the things that they may hear. Some things you may disagree with, some things you may not. But that is all a part of the community dialogue. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be taken away as of now. Welcome you all uh, to be hosting this dialogue this evening. My name is Joseph and I work for an organization called the Yes Institute. We're very happy to be a part of this initiative to have these important conversations with our community. Um, this is possible through a grant through the Elton John AIDS Foundation, so we're very excited that we're getting that funding to be able to host this kind of work. I now want to introduce Hugh Beswick. I'm Hugh Beswick. I, I, I know most of the people here. I'm, I'm the CEO of the World AIDS Museum. We're thrilled that you're here tonight. We really are. This series means so much to us. Um, the mission of the museum, and I'll tell the reason is because our mission, the World AIDS Museum mission, is to significantly increase people's awareness of HIV and AIDS in a way that we have the effect of decreasing the stigma around HIV and AIDS, because we recognize and know that it's probably the most stigmatized disease that's ever been. And it colors people's lives. It makes people not tell the truth. It makes people live compartmentalized lie lives. It makes people feel ashamed. It does all sorts of things that shouldn't happen. Can everybody hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay. So it's really important to us that we do this. This series means a lot to us. We're doing it in conjunction with the Yes Institute in Miami. Uh, <coughs> Compass in West Palm Beach, in Palm Beach County, and of course the World Age Museum. And each month is a slightly different focus. Tonight the theme is looking at how the black community is dealing with HIV. So um, just a couple of things. We have a wonderful panel. They will Marvin will introduce them in a minute, but I would like to introduce first Marvin Shaw, who uh, works for the he has another job too, but he's an associate of the AIDS Museum and has done all kinds of educational outreach and education for us, and he's been a wonderful support for me. And I mean that. God, God made Marvin into an advocate. Nobody can do that for you. You, you know, you are and you aren't. That's my belief. I want to introduce Patrick Mahoney. Um, we're not sure what's called. He's our director of educational outreach and development with me. And Ed, where's Ed? Oh, Ed Sparron, our, the museum operations manager, is over here by the food. Uh, Steve Stegan's over there. He's the museum founder. And in the back is Jeff Banning, our board president. So, we're, we're so glad you're here. And the way we, the way we carry out our mission of eliminating or re helping to reduce the stigma is through documenting the history of AIDS in an accurate way through remembering the people who have suffered and honoring them, um, through education, through enlightenment, and through empowerment. And everything we do, we say, has to be driven by that mission. And that's what we try to do. So I would like to, before we begin with the panelists, and, and Joe and Marvin are gonna, going to act as the facilitators for the evening, I'd like to see if Marvin wants to say a few words to kick it off. Marvin? Is this working? Yeah, it works fine. 
Uh, just that I'm very excited about tonight, guys, and thank you all so much for being here. This is such a much-needed conversation, and um, I'm very excited uh, to be here. I love the uh, World AIDS Museum. If, if you have not visited the World AIDS Museum and, and have had a tour here at the museum, uh, put that on your bucket list. Um, this place is pretty amazing. There are, um, I think Hugh talks about the, very often, we talk about the number of people that died in the Holocaust. And then when you look at the number of people that have died from HIV AIDS, uh, it far uh, exceeds the number of people that died in the Holocaust. However, this is the only museum that honors uh, that, his that, that history. Uh, but when you look at the number of museums that, that discusses the Holocaust, uh, very often if history is not remembered, it can be repeated. So this museum is, is very, very significant, and it's, it is an extremely inclusive uh, museum. I'm very glad you guys are here tonight. To give you an I should have mentioned that, to give you an idea of the number, I think there were about 8 million people who died in the Holocaust, and there are virtually hundreds of Holocaust museums. And I, I realize it's, you know, it's, um, they've had the advantage of many years since the end of World War II in 1945, but there's one AIDS museum, 80 mil almost 80 million people worldwide have been infected, and close to half have died. And you have to ask yourself, why is this little place the only AIDS museum in the world? Isn't that kind of remarkable? I think it is. I, I really do, and I think that's what you were trying to make. Right. You know, we think that that says a whole lot about people's willingness to deal with this. So we're really proud that we are we're able to do that. So why don't I turn this over to Joe? Thanks, Hugh. And I would like to start by introducing all of the rest of our panelists. And Yolanda, can we start with you, and then we'll come down the line. <coughs> I think I need that. Okay. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. My name is Mrs. Yeah, Yolanda cool. Denise yeah. Reed-Bell. I am a person positively living with the virus, and I have been living with the virus. I was diagnosed at 17, but I was infected at 15. Um, I'm 25 and holding now, but I'm holding at least 20 more. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's about it. All right, uh, Christopher. <clears throat> Uh, Christopher Bates, I've worked in HIV for more than 25 years, uh, both at the local, state, and federal level. My name is Marvin Shaw. I am a community activist. Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Lorenzo Robertson. I'm the Emerging Interventions Manager with the Pride Center. Hi, good evening. I'm Jamal Starks, and you've probably seen me on the last few panels, very outspoken, very... Um, uh, advocate for <coughs> HIV AIDS, LGBTQ, people of color, very passionate. True, um, I, my platform is um, I won't stop until true liberation for all people. So how, how this evening um, is roughly planned to work is each of the panelists is going to share about their personal journey um, and then um, you're welcome to ask questions as we go forward. This is really designed to be a dialogue and a discussion. Um, so um, back to you, Yolanda, can we start with you? Why don't you share with a little bit about, with us about your experiences, what you've been through, share with us your heart. And just to also um, emphasize that we want to create this, um, <coughs> this, this room tonight as what I like to call a, a brave space, a courageous space where people sometimes can share their truth openly and know that it's going to be listened to and received with empathy and love. So, Yolanda. Okay, first of all, um, I'd like to, I have a couple of people that came with me. Um, my very good friend and sister, Takesha, um, she works with Vitas Hospice, and my grandmother, my 85-year-old grandmother. I'll share her with you all. Her name is Nana. <laughs> um, and I might be a little nervous only because my grandmother is here and I have never shared um, this platform um, with her, in front of her. So please, excuse me, please bear with me. All right, so as I said, I was diagnosed at the age of 17, um, but I know when I was infected. Like I was 15 years old and um, I was 
I was dating a 25-year-old man, um, and I remember him specifically saying to me uh, when I had moved in with him for two weeks after running away from home, um, okay, baby girl, now I sweat at night and the pillow might be soaked, but I don't want it to, to bother you. Don't worry about it. You know, I remember that conversation very vividly. Um, fast forward, that was in 1987. So about 20 years later, or maybe 20, maybe about 20 years later, I saw him um, and he was just getting out of he was just getting out of jail and I remember walking up to the entrance and I saw all these boxes of medication and different kinds of medication and I saw the name on it and I'm saying well nah this can't be this can't be I sat down for a minute because I was by this time I had been diagnosed um, I had gone through the denial phase I had gone through um, um, using drugs and everything else to um, to take myself out of myself because when I, when I was diagnosed, I was told I would only have two years to live. Um, so I, I see all this medication and then I see this man come out of the door and this man must have weighed about 80 pounds. He had no teeth in his mouth and he sat down and I looked at him and I was like, wow. And so I said to him, do you know who I am? And in a very feeble voice, he said, you look kind of familiar. I said, yeah. I said, I'm Willie's cousin. I said, I'm Nikki. And the look that he got on his face when I said, when I told him who I was, um, was just one of, I think, a lot of shame. And I said, and you know what? I just need to tell you that I forgive you and that it's okay. After that, not long after that, I heard that he had passed away. So I was diagnosed. I wanted to go into the, into the military. And that's how I was diagnosed. I had to take a physical. And so I, got, I came home April 11, 1989 from school. And the phone rang. And it was MEPS, the Military Entrance Processing Center down in um, Doral. And they were calling me. And they were telling me that um, I could not join the Air Force because my blood results, lab results, had come back on my blood and I was HIV positive and I, I needed to call a doctor, I needed to find a doctor. Um, that's how it was delivered to me. But I was 17 and I didn't know anything about HIV and AIDS. This was 1989. You know, this, it was AIDS and HIV, HIV and AIDS was just being really talked about during that time. And so I, the first thing I did was I called my mom and she, she answered the phone and I told her, I said, Mom, I can't go into the Air Force. And she was like, what do you mean you can't go into the Air Force? I said, they just called me and told me I have HIV. And all I could hear was the phone hitting the ground. Like, my mother was a nurse, you know. And so she took, she was shocked more so than me. Um, so, but from that, from the, from, the mo from the moment that I was diagnosed, I didn't have sense enough to hide my disease. Um, my mom, I told my mom, my dad, my father, my stepmom, my, my aunts, my, like my family, they all, I told them all. And I don't regret, I didn't tell my grandmother though. Um, but I have no regrets because I think that, I think that by me opening up with them about what was going on with me, they were able to uh, circle the wagons and um, I want to say protect me from, from the stigma that was so rampant and that still is very rampant around this disease. So I've, I haven't had the experiences that a lot of people have had when it comes to stigma. And I'm so grateful for that because that gave me legs to stand on when I decided to become an advocate, when I decided to be, um, to be the voice for those people who could not, who could not or would not speak up for themselves. Um, my passion is uh, black women positively living with the virus. Because I've seen women hide their medications, not only from their significant others, but from their children. I've seen them put them, in, put them on the top shelf in the closet, um, up under the bed, put them in different bottles. I've seen all that, you know, and, and they are so ashamed um, of living with this virus. I've never been stigmatized that I know of. Maybe behind my back, but never to my face. You know, I believe that love is greater than the stigma. My dad says that HIV and AIDS is not an alone disease, and so that you know, the strength of my family has been my guiding light and my saving grace throughout my throughout this entire process. So. Thank you.
I have two sons. Both of them are HIV negative. I right. have two grandchildren. Um, you know, I educated my sons from an early age. I had their dad teach them how to put on a condom correctly. Um, we did videos. I had condom dishes with them growing up with two boys in the house. You know, you don't have candy dishes. I had condom dishes. This <laughs> was the place that everybody hung out at. So, you know, um, when my, my sons have spoken with me, you know, um, and they are, they are some of my strongest supporters. Being six three and a half and six four, you know, I don't get a lot of slack when they're in the room. <laughs> um, and, I'm, and I also recently got married. Now I'm the only person in my nuclear family who is positive. My sons, their dad, unfortunately, he was killed, but he was negative. My sons are negative. My husband is negative. And it was, and I'll share this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll pass the mic. You know, when I started dating my husband, you know, he said, well, Yolanda, he said, you know, I know a little bit about HIV and AIDS, but what more do I need to know? And I, so I told him about this little thing called PrEP. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. So the very next day, he went and he did, he took the steps needed to start PrEP. And so you know, I've just always had that support. And I think that for me and for, for anybody who's living with, living with the virus, that the support of our loved ones is, 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 uh, can mean life or death. <laughs> Yolanda, can you... Talk, talk, talk about PrEP to the audience and how that works, why that's significant for you and your husband? Well, my husband and I are serodiscordant, which means I'm positive and he's negative. So somebody somewhere decided that if, um, if there are serodiscordant couples, or let's just, or, or somewhere, someone somewhere decided that um, this little blue pill known as Trivada, which is an ART, which is an antiretroviral medication, would be safe for people who are not positive when they're um, in relationships like mine or maybe having um, or, or at high risk for the virus. So, you know, I told, I explained all this to my husband, but I also explained to him that that the pill alone is not is not the answer. That the pill has to be used in conjunction with a condom. So. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we work. <laughs> I want to. I want to ask you another question because, um, as I read about uh, some of the advocacy work that you've done, I do know that you've spoken in front of the uh, the Congressional Black Caucus, as well as you've spoken in front of the uh, the national. Um, uh, Baptist Convention, Baptist Convention. Um, and so one of the things that I believe is that the black church is probably still the most powerful entity in the black community and so um, in many ways the HIV disease HIV condition itself is considered a gay disease mm -hmm. and a lot of black churches you know see homosexuality as a sin and very often HIV is thought of as a disease that sexually deviant individuals uh, are infected with. How, how, what are our hopes in the church really getting involved uh, in this? Marvin, about, I've been doing advocacy for a very long time. And um, I also, I was involved with the Broward County HIV Planning Council for a number of years. And I mentioned that because that, um, that led me in, uh, to get in contact with a young lady by the name of Georgia Scott. At the time, she was involved with something called CUSH, which was Churches United to Stop HIV. Um, unfortunately, that, that initiative is no longer active. But, um, and I belong to New Mount Olive Baptist Church. We have, a, we have an HIV ministry called Angels of Hope. Um, you know, I can understand the fear I can understand the assumed stigma that is attached with the black church, but again, like I said, I have not, even in, even in my home church, my father and I have stood before the congregation. You know, we've talked about HIV and AIDS. Um, I've, I've stood alone. Uh, speaking speaking at, the, at the Florida Baptist Convention was, I was literally, I was so nervous. I was really afraid because I thought um, that there was going to be some stigma and there was going to be some judgment there. But what I found once I opened up um, is that the pastors and the bishops 
and the deacons, they were they just wanted to know. They were they were ignorant and they were they were um, craving information, you know. And the more the more we sat and the more that I spoke, um, it was there was no judgment there. It was it was an I need to understand, I wanna understand, um, and what can we do, you know. Um, like I said, my church, there is no condemnation, there is no judgment there at all. Our Angels of Hope ministry meets every Tuesday, you know, and as long as I've been a member of that church, um, one of the passions, one of the ministries, it's always been HIV and AIDS, you know, so I can't speak on, on, I'm sorry, let me say this, I will speak on it because you and I spoke about this. You know, when people are searching for a church home, you just got to find the one that fits. You know, there, there are bad apples in every bunch. All the saints that sit up in church, they, they were sinners too. You know, but they, but, but sometimes we, they still, you know, we, they, they still pass judgment. But that's not the entire church. That is not the entire church. So my suggestion would be just to find a church home that fits if that's what you're craving. Um, they, I will say that they have come a long way. The black church and the black newspaper are our voices in the black community. We look to them for guidance. We look for, to them for nourishment. We, we look to them as our leaders. And the black church of 1986 is not the black church of 2017. So, you're welcome. So, um, Christopher, would you like to share? It's hard to follow you. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, right. Um, uh, good evening, everyone. My story is completely different. One, I'm not HIV positive, but in 1981, I had my first friend to tell me he's sick and he had pneumonia. Within six months of him making that pronouncement, he was dead. From 1981 to 1989, I think I lost over 50 friends and a couple of relatives. People were dropping like flies in the 80s from the epidemic. It was like a living nightmare. And I have to confess that at the time, I was just afraid of people with AIDS. Well, we didn't even call it HIV then. In the beginning, they called it GRID. Okay, uh, and GRID basically was a, a gay disease, uh, was a designation for us because everybody associated the early uh, disease that nobody had a name for as the gay disease. And eventually scientists identified the virus and eventually we got understandings about it. But in the early days, every American, everybody around the world was scared to death of anybody who was identified as a person who had um, AIDS. And so I had to come to terms with the fact that I was losing all my friends and that I couldn't stand on the sideline and just watch people pass. I had to take a stand. Um, and I started getting involved. And by 1990, I was a buddy to several people. Uh, I was raising money for organizations that were providing services. Uh, to people living with this disease. And at the time, and it was the time, the federal government was not involved, folks. Um, we as a gay and then lesbian community, because that's how we started out identifying ourselves, uh, we were in this by ourselves. And it was our uh, lesbian sisters and heterosexual women who were the first wave of supporters of gay men who were living with this disease, other than other gay men. And so the 80s was a very dark period, both in terms of the disease, but both in terms of the medical community and public health, because nobody dealt with us fairly. Nobody did. I can remember one day walking into Howard University Hospital and seeing gurneys of men lying with their food on the floor, and some, excuse my language, had shitted on themselves, others had uh, vomited on themselves, and the smell and the stench was horrible. And I kind of, no, not kind of, I did, I went nuts. And I said, this is horrible, this is awful. 
and you all have to clean this up and I'm calling the media and I'm calling the mayor's office and in a matter of a little bit of time they cleaned it up and things kind of got normal that day but that action led to the families of those guys who were sitting in the hallway to actually file a lawsuit against the hospital and the hospital settled out of court. And I think that gave kind of voice to me and it said I could do something. So in 1991 when a group of community uh, folks approached me about running a new organization um, that would get some federal funding called the DC Care Consortium, I agreed to do it. And from 1981 to about seven months ago, I guess, or maybe eight, um, I have worked in HIV. And um, I'm proud of the record. I'm sad about the fact that we have not found a cure, but I'm very happy that science has found a way to manage the disease and that science has identified an intervention that can keep people from contracting HIV, and that's PrEP that we talked about before, uh, which is pre-exposure prophylactic, okay? And it means that if you take the pill and you have enough of that uh, chemical in your system that your body can ward off the HIV virus from settling into your system and taking over your immune system, that's progress. And that, with what we know about treatment, and treatment is prevention, folks. Treatment is prevention. An HIV person who has a viral load that's undetectable will not transfer their virus to a negative person. Say that again, Christopher, so it sinks in with everybody. Okay. An HIV-positive person who is taking their medication and sticking to their regimen and who has a viral load that we call undetectable. It doesn't mean the viral load is gone. It means that it's reached a low point in a person's system such that they won't transmit the virus to a negative person. That's progress. So between that, the PrEP, the condom, we have some tools now to work with that change the course of this epidemic. Up until about four years ago, every year we were having 60 to 50 to 60 new cases of HIV in the U.S. I'm pleased to say right now we have dropped that number down to about 34,000, sorry, 34,000 new cases in the U.S. That's progress, folks. That's major progress. So we may be on the brink of eradicating this epidemic. However, 34 is still a bad number because that's 34,000 people every year who's contracting HIV. That's 34,000 people who may not know their status for some time and may be infecting other people who are yet to be identified. So the war is kind of not over, but we've got some tools to be in the battle and we can do really good work. I do want to comment on one thing that our our uh, moderator has raised, because it's a real tickler point for me, and that is the black church. For years and years, the black church was silent. But damn it, everybody else's church was silent too. <laughs> so, you know, point fingers at our community when white gay men and Latino men and women and people, basically, of all colors and ethnicities, have been impacted by this epidemic, there was a lot of silence in the global community of churches. Now, while we have seen much progress in church community and faith communities, there's still much more to be done. And they need to come to terms as a faith, a global faith community, and deal with the fact that, you know what, if we don't address this epidemic, they won't have people in the pew. Because guess what? None of us get here without somebody having sex. <laughs> None of us. And HIV is not the only threat to humankind. There are other sexually transmitted diseases that are not, that are not treated, that are not diagnosed, can cause blindness, and cause your, you to lose your uh, hearing, and, and your organs don't function, and will kill you. And will kill you. So as much as sex is pleasurable, <laughs> sex also has its downside if all the variables are not positive 
at the time sex is engaged in. So we have to be really careful about how we throw stones. We have to be really careful about how we judge one another because all of us live in a glass house. And no, 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 no one of us is walking around plexiglass safe. So guys, one of the reasons, well, the reason why this is such a significant conversation to have is because one of the things that Christopher Bates talked about is the fact that the overall number of people that are being diagnosed with HIV today, that number is down significantly, you know, significantly. So what that tells us, the people that work in this industry, is that some of the work that we're doing is effective, that it is actually working. Science have come extremely far. So Mr. Bates talked about the fact that there is an HIV strategy now where an HIV negative person can take a pill. And we, we liken it to being on a birth control pill. The same way a woman can take a pill every day and it significantly reduces the chances of her becoming pregnant. Well, today there's a pill that you can take. If you're HIV positive and you are in, if you are what we consider at high risk of contracting HIV, you're in a relationship with someone that happens to be HIV positive. You can take a pill every day, and taking that pill will significantly... Now, we highly suggest... Well, the strategy is the pill in combination with the condom. But taking that PrEP significantly reduces the chances of you contracting HIV. <laughs> the reason this conversation is important is because the, of... The only demographic, the, the overall number of people being diagnosed with HIV today is down. However, the only demographic where we continue to see the numbers actually rise is among black people. And so the question for us is where are we failing the black community? In all the work that we do, some way, somehow, this message is not getting to the black community. So one of my questions to you, Mr. Bates, is why is HIV considered a social justice issue? Okay, let me just correct you on one point, and I don't, I don't want to say that you were wrong. New infections among black people really are occurring among young black gay men. They're the leaders, young black gay men, roughly from the age of about 17 to 29 years old. Okay, that's one truth. But we also have another population that's sort of creeping up in their numbers. And that's men, and some women, over the age of 50 years old. All of a sudden, you know, folks lose their, their wife or their spouse, and they're out in the game again, and they're thinking that HIV is something that the young people need to deal with when it is an issue that they need to be concerned about, too. Okay? And then if you couple that with substance, substance abuse that's going on in our community, whether it's alcohol, let's start at the bottom of the ladder, or it's meth at the top of the ladder, we have an epidemic, well, we have two epidemics going on simultaneously that are feeding one another. And so we need to be cognizant of that as we leave this room and we talk about our own behaviors, but also the behaviors of our family and the behaviors of our friends. Because alcohol can so depress some of your anxiety about sexual engagement that you might lose your mind and do some things that you otherwise may not do. And we know that's true if you take stronger drugs. So just be mindful of that. Um, your question again. I Why is HIV considered a social... So, uh, <coughs> well, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is we still live in a society where access to health care is solely dependent on the availability of your dollar or your ability to pay. So if you can't pay for your medical appointments with your doctor, if you can't pay for the treatment, then you basically are shit out of luck, excuse the language. But we do have something called public medicine or public health. And the government, federal government, and the state and the local government have kind of kicked in to provide for those who will come forward. But HIV or any other disease does not live in a vacuum. A lot of things contribute to a person acquiring these diseases. Lack of good education, 
a lack of paying attention when your ass was sitting in the classroom to the teacher so you would be able to understand what language you're reading and what the words mean so that you can interpret that and then do the following. That means know how to read instructions. <coughs> Secondly, if you don't have a job, you can't buy anything for yourself, including health insurance. If you don't have a house, then that means you don't have a roof on your head. That means you might be couch surfing or living from pillar to post. And so that means you might be a victim of, of, of people with, with other diseases and other conditions. You might be in a household where folks might not have enough food to feed everybody there. And all kinds of other things could be happening if you do not have housing. So there are structural things, because poverty is a leading denominator in understanding HIV and disease and, 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 and troubles that people have in our society. So in that regard, until our government steps up to the plate and provides for the health care of every person regardless of their ability to pay, we will be challenged. We will be challenged because those who cannot pay will for good health care may get marginal health care in some situations and in others they won't get any health care. So we need to move to a place, you know, I'm not a big Bernie Sanders fan, but when he was talking about, you know, universal health care during the elections, that resonated with me because I know so many poor people. I know so many people who were once middle class people and as a result of all their health conditions are now poor people because they lost everything in their efforts to try to keep their health together. They had to sell their houses, they sold their car, they gave up their jewelry. And if their health was really bad, they ended up not being able to work. And our government sort of forces you into that corner. You have to be poor to get public assistance. Mm -hmm. Why don't we move on to Lorenzo so that each person does get a chance. Okay, thank you. Thank yeah. Okay, no problem. Thank you, Christopher. I just want to say um, thank Christopher for being a part of the panel today because originally uh, Evelyn Ula, who uh, is the past um, director of HIV services for the uh, health department, agreed to sit on the panel and she's n uh, no longer, she, she wasn't able to come because she has a, a, a sickly m a mother that she's caring for. But I just want to read three bullet points that she sent to me in an email today of what her thoughts were. Um, she, she writes, for over three decades, health equity and social justice have been of paramount, paramount importance in responding to, HIV, to the HIV AIDS epidemic. The CDC reports if black America were its own country, it would rank 16th in the world for new HIV infections. Sadly, Broward and Miami-Dade County ranked number one and number two in the state and nationally. Third. Countywide, we have not had a community response to stigma. No initiatives, nor programs. Uh, we did have a popular social marketing campaign on stigma created by the Pride Center. As a black community, we are engaged in a war against health inequities that makes and keeps us vulnerable to new HIV infections. Since we experienced the epidemic, epidemic disproportionately affecting our community, we need to question whether the root cause has less to do with behavior and more to do with social injustices, race, racism, poverty, political inequalities, representation standard, housing, etc. And I'll stop there. Just want me to talk about my experiences. Bring the mic closer. Thanks. Okay. Well, my story is kind of like um, somewhat the way Yolanda was saying that she did not, she has not experienced any stigma. Neither have I really haven't experienced stigma in terms of being HIV positive. When I first was diagnosed in 1997, um, it was like before I actually got the diagnosis of a series of incidents happened. I had this this growth on my eye. It started at the size of a garden pea, and within four to five days, it was the size of a golf ball. 
and the side of my face was just hanging down. But um, and my doctor was like, Lorenzo, we don't know what's wrong. I'm like, I don't either. So, <laughs> so we did a series of tests. Over the course of a month, he did like tests after tests after tests, and all these tests continuously came back negative. And then the final test, he was like, well, Lorenzo, let's do an HIV test. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm a black gay man talking to you, so that should have been one of our first tests, but, you know. Um, so we finally did that test. It came back. It was positive. And at that point, I had, like, 11 T-cells, so I was um, diagnosed with AIDS, not HIV. So when all the time that I was HIV positive, I was not aware of my HIV status. So, I mean, that was kind of how I started um, dealing with HIV and AIDS in the, whole, in the beginning. Um, because prior to my diagnosis, I was one of those people. I was invincible. I was Lorenzo, and HIV had nothing to do with me, and I wasn't going to get it. So, therefore, I didn't even think anything that it would be a part of my life in terms of it being me being infected with it. So, as I lived my life prior to me, my knowing my status, I was always like, that's those little nasty-ass people. Because that's what we'd say. You know, we talk about those dirty people. Those are the ones who get HIV. It's never the clean people. It's never the people who are like us. It's always those people. And that was my attitude. And if you had HIV, you were not getting anything next to me. I couldn't date you. I didn't want to be with you because that was my, that's how people had talked about HIV. And I didn't really, I wasn't really educated about HIV. So I listened to what other people said. So it was those nasty people. So that was kind of how I thought about HIV for a very long time. And then when I started to educate myself on it prior to my diagnosis, then I started to look at HIV from a different perspective because I realized that it wasn't necessarily that you could have one sexual experience and become HIV positive. And that doesn't mean that's just one experience because the person that you're with, they may or may not have known their HIV status. So therefore, they may have transmitted HIV to you without even knowing it. So, you know, I had to do some um, self you know, some introspection with myself to come to terms with how people actually become HIV positive and realize that it's not about all these dirty people and nasty people. It's really about people who are being human and who are having sexual behaviors or sexual activities with other people. And it's really about that. It's not about all the other st- the negative things that we've heard and we are always taught about HIV. So when I was living with HIV for, um, when I was on, before I got married and everything, I was on the dating apps, and, but I always put my HIV status on there. It's like, I'm HIV positive, blah, blah, blah. So people would know. Um, so I didn't want to be one of those people who was kind of not sharing that about myself and not telling people. So I was always kind of open about my HIV status. Um, and I remember when I first was diagnosed, I was in a relationship at the time, and my partner, we talked about it. My partner's still, my ex-partner, he's still HIV negative now. Um, but we talked about how do we move forward in terms of our relationship. And we, we know we, we still had our, a sexual relationship with each other, but it was protected, and we made sure that he remained HIV negative. But one of the other things was that when, of course, then I had to tell my family, you know, all those types of things. Um, so, I, you know, I took a weekend. I went home and to tell my family, tell my mom, tell my dad, tell my brother, tell my sister, you know, tell everybody because I wanted them to know from me, not necessarily hearing it from someone else. So that was kind of how I got involved with HIV. But I had started working with an AIDS service organization prior to that. And, you know, it's unfortunate because even sometimes now in people who work in HIV, sometimes those are the people who become HIV positive while they're working in the field. And it becomes that whole stigma in terms of you looking at yourself like, damn, I work in HIV and I'm HIV positive. How did that happen? But we're human. I mean, so we're just like everybody else. And so... But for me, when I was living with, you know, living with HIV, um, I never really had any issues with my family, my friends, people like Yolanda. It's like, I don't know what people say behind my back, and it's none of my business. But in my face, I've never had any stigma. I had never had any negativity. I've never had any bad relationships with people because of my HIV status. Most people, they applauded me because I was one of those people who was very vocal about it. And when I became HIV positive, I started talking about it. I started working in, in, in roles in terms of I can utilize my, not only my sexual orientation, but also my HIV status to actually educate the community about HIV. So that's kind of what I did, and that's kind of like my platform. And the people that I really try to focus in is on black gay men because there's not a lot of work being done in that population. Um, there's a lot of work done, being done in black communities in terms of the general community, but when we start narrowing it down to the black gay community, we very rarely, a lot of those things are not being targeted to that population. So even one of the things that I do with my Ujima Men's Collective, we actually try to educate the, the black gay community about how you can live your life. How We have five areas that we work in. We have leadership, 
advocacy, spirituality, relationships, health, and wellness, because we want black same-gender-loving men to realize that they're not just HIV. Because so many times when you hear about black gay men, it's black gay men and HIV rates. Black gay men and how, how did they come, become HIV positive? We want them to realize that they can be leaders. They can be advocates. They can be husbands and fathers. They can be so much more than just HIV. And that's one of the things that we educate men with our Eugenia Men's Collectives. And that's kind of my platform in terms of really trying to focus in on black, same, gender-loving men and how we can move forward and how we can live in the, live in the light and not live in the shadows. So, um, so Lorenzo, one of the, Lorenzo uh, is the founder of the Ujima Men's uh, Collective uh, Conference, which is all about uh, empowering Black gay men. Um, he also started Brother Speak here in Fort Lauderdale and in West Palm Beach, Tampa. In Tampa, and also in Tampa, uh, which is a collection of Black gay men, anywhere from twenty to forty men every week meet at the Pride Center, and we just have discussion. It's extremely powerful, uh, just coming together with like-minded individuals. To discuss one of the things that I've heard said about you, and it was by Mr. Bates here, is that he has heard you. <laughs> he's heard you more more than anyone has always identified himself as a gay individual. And so, Mike, I have two questions for you. My question to you: Why is that important to you? Well, one of the reasons it's important to me is that until people start to see black, same gender loving men in a positive light or just see them visibly, they're going to always have the stereotypes of what they think black gay men are. Yeah. Nothing, to, nothing against people like RuPaul, which I think she's phenomenal. However, all black gay men don't want to be women. So therefore, you have to see the entire spectrum of what black gay men are. So that's why I want people to see me that I am a black, same gender loving man. I may be effeminate to some people, I may not be to other people, but I want them to see the, the spectrum as to what we can be, and it's not just a narrow box of who they, the, the, the stereotype of what they want us to be. And so that's why I'm, it's very, that's one of my passions and my pet peeves in terms of black, same, gender, loving men to be open about it because there's also another generation of younger black men who are seeking and looking for role models to say, well, I can be like Mr. Bates. Right. I can be like Mr. Marvin. I can be like other people. But if they don't see those black, same, gender, loving men, they have nobody, they have no role models to aspire to. So therefore, that's one of the reasons I, I really think that we have to stand out and be open about our sexual orientation. Okay, so my second question to you, as an HIV advocate that specifically targets the black community and more specifically the black gay community, what has been your struggle in working for organizations or agencies that may not be run by black people or may be owned and operated by individuals that don't relate to the black uh, struggle? Okay. Wow. Hold on. All right. Um, now that is that is really that is a good question. Um, now I've I've had the opportunity to work for an organization whereas it was run by black people and it was for the black community. So I've had both experiences, um, and in both in both cases, it's it's not necessarily for me about the organization in terms of what their agenda is. I have to I have to remain true to my agenda, regardless of what organization I work for. If my focus and my purpose is to work for the black community, because when I first started for, when I first started working for the Pride Center, we did little or no work in the black community. So one of the my things was like I want to do I want to go to the MLK Day Parade. So we went. The Pride Center was at the MLK Day Parade, passing out condoms, talking to the black community. And last year we had our CEO and our COO out there in the black community passing out condoms. So that's, I mean, you have to kind of, you have to get into the community, into the organization, and you have to make the strides to do the things that you want to do. And you have to also make sure that you're doing your job. So therefore, when you're asking to do stuff, it's not an issue. So you're doing your job. So that's, what the, the, that's the way I do it. I try to incorporate things that are important to me in, and try to infuse it into the, the agenda and the mission of the organization. Because I can extract things from the organization's mission and add the things that are important to me and show them how this is also important to the mission of the organization. So that's how I do it. And even with the program that we do now, the Kiki Project, our organization was approached by the health department to do that program. And so 
the CEO and the COO came to me and said, well, Lorenzo, do you think we can do this for the black community? Mm-hmm. Not that we're going to do it and you just do it. It was like, do you think? And I was like, yes. Even in my mind, I was thinking, oh, Lord, how are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> but I knew that, that was, those were funds that needed to be going into the black community for black gay men. And I was like, I'd be damned if we go to another agency and I, and I have anything to say about it. So, therefore, that's how I do it. I try to infuse my passion, my agenda into the organization's agenda. Same thing I did when I worked for a black organization. That our focus was not necessarily on, on gay men. But we started to do program, programming for gay men because that was my agenda and I kept Kind of infuse that into the things that we were doing. So, whatever organization that you work for, whatever your passion is, you can infuse that into the organization's mission mission as well. It's up it's up to you to kind of get the organization to start to follow your lead in terms of things that you think are important and demonstrate to them why it's important not only to you but how it's important to the organization and it's going to be important to them and the community. Okay, so I'm not going to be long-winded with my (laughs) story or any of my experiences. I'm just going to let you know that I'm positive. I've been positive since 2007, probably 2005. Um, I've dealt with the stigma. I continue to deal with the stigma. I just untagged myself on his life due to the sick stigma. I have a very high-profile career. Um, I'm one of the operations managers over Spirit, the entire airline. And due to that, I attacked myself on the live. Um, Because clearly, you can't be in corporate America and have a strategy or a place you're going or I haven't gotten to this place by having a public life with your health and everything else. Um, I am very public with it, though. When it comes down to my family, my friends, it just really, I mean, doesn't bother me. But... There still is um, a way, a time, and a place that you must navigate in a system Mm -hmm. that is set up against you. Mm -hmm. And I have to navigate intelligently. I have Mm -hmm. to navigate my way. Um, I haven't gotten to this place being stupid about um, or sometimes spontaneity can be seen as courageous and sometimes it's just uncalled for at the time. I also met, I guess you can say mentor, because I know a host, and I'm close to a host of um, black gay men around my age, I'm 30, big 33, around my age, who are HIV positive, and nobody will ever know. Beautiful black gay men, on treatment, everything, but you would never know. And they always ask me, oh, how, do, how do you do it? How do you stay? So? And I'm just like, I just just pop my pill and keep going <laughs> like <laughs> um I do what I have to do and I actually don't even think about it it's like an afterthought it's actually not until I'm sitting here in front of you speaking about it that I'm even conscious that it's even in my body um I go to the doctor and I'm healthy undetectable all of that it's never an afterthought it's just this is what I do with my day and this is what I do with my life Well, we hope you have enjoyed the Community Dialogue Series Part 1 of the impact of HIV stigma on the black community in South Florida here in the World AIDS Museum. Again, this will be Part 1, and there will be Part 2 the following week here in Brothers Week Podcast, where we discuss about black LGBT issues and topics. We do hope you enjoyed the first portion of it. And again, this is Chris signing off. Have a wonderful day.